Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Goodman, a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy and former CIA analyst who considers what the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan means for the Afghan people and the U.S. Walker Bragman, a reporter with the Daily Poster, who warns that the Democrats' failure to pass voting rights protection legislation gives the Republican Party a green light to gerrymander their way to a decade of minority rule. And Zach Tilley of the Children's Defense Fund, who explains how COVID-19 pandemic relief funds cut child poverty in half, an achievement which could now be made permanent by Congress. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Ethiopian forces launched an attack on the northern district of Tigray nine months ago, but the African nation's troops have recently lost ground to Tigray rebels. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has responded to recent losses on the battlefield by restricting the issuance of visas to aid workers and seizing communications equipment from relief organizations working in Tigray. According to Foreign Policy magazine, the Biden administration is now working to draw down the war in Tigray. But the Ethiopian prime minister hasn't replied to requests for a meeting with U.S. officials. The U.S. provides Ethiopia with nearly $1 billion in aid annually. U.S.-Ethiopian relations became strained after Ahmed's forces moved into Tigray, a region bordering Eritrea. High-level Biden officials have warned there are early signs of ethnic cleansing in Tigray, possibly even genocide. The U.S. has sent Jeffrey Feltman, the special envoy to the Horn of Africa, to engage in talks with Ahmed's regime and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. During an August 4th visit to the capital, Addis Ababa, Samantha Power, head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, stated, We have seen horrific attacks against aid workers who are doing nothing more than providing food and other forms of assistance to people in desperate need. Diplomats and aid groups have blamed Ahmed's government for delaying aid shipments to Tigray, where there is a rising risk of famine. In May, over 5 million people were stranded in the conflict zone, with over half suffering from food insecurity and severe malnutrition. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the average lifespan in the U.S. fell by 1.5 years, the steepest decline since World War II. In a study by the Centers for Disease Control, the average age of Americans was 77.3 years old, the lowest level in over 15 years. Declines in life expectancy were much greater among black and Latino residents, reflecting severe U.S. racial health disparities. CDC researcher Elizabeth Arias observed the decline between 2019 and 2020 was so large it took us back to the level in 2003. According to the CDC, COVID accounted for 74% of the decline in life expectancy, with drug overdoses also being a major factor. Thus far, more than 621,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 infections. The pandemic exposed major racial disparities in access to health care. 
Life expectancy of blacks declined by 2.9 years to 71.8 years, and the average Latino's lifespan dropped by 3.7 to 75.3 years, the largest decline of any group. Communities of color often face the full brunt of COVID, since they are more likely to be frontline workers, earn lower wages, and live in crowded conditions. They also disproportionately suffered from pre-pandemic health issues made worse by lack of access to quality health care. Call center workers with health care insurance giant Cigna are complaining of suffering harsh and abusive conditions during the pandemic. The Guardian reports that call workers complain of high production demands, fear of being fired, and long waits for processing consumer complaints. Meanwhile, Cigna's profits increased in 2020 to $8.5 billion from $5.1 billion a year ago. Cigna has recently announced plans to increase the company's stock buybacks. The insurance company closed most of its offices during the pandemic with call center representatives working from home under heavy supervision. Unhappy workers initiated an online petition to demand improved working conditions, the lifting of a pay freeze, an end to constant harassment of call workers to meet production metrics, and a call to establish a process to deal with abusive customers. Workers say they handled a huge volume of callers irritated about delays in processing their COVID-19 testing reimbursement claims as the workers were continually being monitored by apps and prompted to move on to the next call. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Taliban forces swept through Afghanistan, taking over provincial capitals with lightning speed in recent weeks, it was clear that the nation's capital, Kabul, would soon fall to the guerrilla group that was driven out of power by the U.S. 20 years ago. When the Afghan government collapsed and Taliban forces entered Kabul on August 15th, viral videos captured the chaos at the Hamid Karzai International Airport where thousands of American allied Afghan translators and contractors, fearful of Taliban reprisals, desperately sought safe passage out of the country. President Biden was widely criticized for the failure of the U.S. to anticipate the speed of the Taliban march to victory and not better organizing special immigrant visas for the estimated 18,000 Afghans who work for the U.S. military. In a speech on August 16th, Mr. Biden admitted that the fall of Kabul had unfolded more quickly than had been predicted, while forcefully defending his decision to end America's longest war, honoring commitments made in a peace deal with the Taliban signed by the Trump administration. Afghan citizens who remember the brutal Taliban rule from 1996 to the post-9-11 October 2001 U.S. invasion are fearful for their future, especially women and girls who were the target of the Islamist government's most severe repression. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, who had a 42-year government career at the CIA and State Department. Here, he considers, 
what the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan means for the Afghan people and the U.S. Well, I still find it shocking that four presidents over a 20-year period and four administrations over a 20-year period could make so many mistakes and have so many uh, misassumptions about what they were dealing with. And there was so much deceit with regard with what was communicated to the American people. So it's, to me, unfortunate that it falls on Biden to finally tell the American people what they needed to hear which is that we have no national security interests whatsoever in Afghanistan, that we could never really engage uh, in nation-building in a, in a country that is not a nation. Uh, and I think he could have even gone further to uh, take note of the fact that Afghanistan has been in a civil war situation off and on since the 1970s. And even before the Soviet Union went in in 1979, you had a very hawkish national security advisor – by the name of Zbigniew Brzezinski, who convinced Jimmy Carter it would be a good idea to get involved with covert military assistance in the Afghan situation. And Brzezinski's goal was to try to draw the Soviet Union in, thinking this would uh, be a real weakness uh, for the Soviet Union. So we were involved in this from before 1979. The Soviet Union ended up being in there for 10 years. Gorbachev came in in 1985, gave a secret speech referring to Afghanistan as a bleeding wound, gave the military one year to straighten things up when they couldn't have any success whatsoever. He announced a timetable and got out in a year. We didn't have that kind of a leader until Biden came along. And if you even go to 2009, when you think of Obama's first year, remember Obama campaigned on the premise that Afghanistan was the good war. Iraq was the bad war. Afghanistan was the good war. And he fell for all of the military propaganda about what a surge could do in Afghanistan. This was the line that was being peddled by Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, by General David Petraeus, General Stanley McChrystal. And Biden called Obama aside on a couple occasions to say, don't get boxed in by the military. This is no time to be increasing forces. So Biden, to his credit, has wanted to get out of Afghanistan uh, for more than the past decade. There's a lot of justified concern right now about Afghan women and girls and uh, what kind of government they will encounter with the Taliban coming back into power. There's some thinking out there that the Taliban may have changed since they held power in Afghanistan during the 1990s. Uh, is there any evidence that the forces now occupying the capital of Kabul are any more moderate than they were back in the 90s? I don't see any reason to think that. I think maybe the, the wish is father to the thought. There's the hope that this will happen. Uh, a lot has been invested in improving the lives of women in Afghanistan. They've made uh, tremendous strides forward in terms of education, particularly. I think all of this now is at risk. When I look at the uh, Afghan Taliban uh, leadership, uh, I wouldn't call anyone a moderate. The only one who seems to be somewhat reasonable is Yakub, who is the son of the former leader, Omar, who died in 2013. But the rest are very extreme. Uh, they're Islamists. Uh, they're anti-women, uh, and, and I, I fear for them. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know what we can do, uh, what influence we can have. A lot of people hope that the Taliban will be so dependent on international assistance that they will be careful in terms of uh, how they administer this Islamist state. 
but I wouldn't count on that. A lot of media pundits right now are talking about how the fall of the Afghan government, the U.S.-supported Afghan government, and the victory of the Taliban, how that will affect the United States and its image, its presence around the world when it comes to military issues. How do you think this will play out in terms of how the world views the United States after this Taliban victory? What I see in the mainstream media, particularly in the Washington Post and the New York Times, is just uh, outrageous in terms of arguing that the international community is now going to look with uh, far less respect uh, for the United States, there'll be far less credibility for the United States in the international arena. The fact of the matter is the United States was willing to spend 20 years uh, to try to correct a situation in Afghanistan that was essentially a fool's errand. And I think when we think of the international community over the long run, they look at the United States as almost uh, a rogue nation of sorts in terms of its willingness to use military power. The problem with U.S. power is, is our almost uh, total reliance on that uh, as opposed to important soft power resources that we could put uh, to use. And I hope that uh, Biden's steps in Afghanistan are really the beginning of steps that need to be taken to reduce our footprint in the global community. We're much too exposed to the Middle East where we have no uh, influence. Uh, clearly, we've lost wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, in just the last several years, and it's not clear that our military power uh, brings any real influence. Here we are with 700, 800 facilities in 80, 90 different countries. Uh, our military spending, add that to our intelligence spending, uh, exceeds the entire global uh, commitment for military and intelligence uh, affairs. We're still talking about modernizing nuclear weapons. There's no sign we're going to engage in a real uh, retreat from various regional decisions. So we need to do a lot of rethinking about our geopolitical presence uh, throughout the international community. That was Mel Goodman, a former CIA analyst and author, who's now a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. Find more analysis and commentary on the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On August 12th, the U.S. Census Bureau released data from the 2020 Census, a count carried out during the lockdowns and social distancing brought on by the coronavirus pandemic and attempts by the Trump administration to manipulate the outcome for partisan advantage. Every 10 years, census data is used to determine the allocation of federal funds and draw new congressional and statehouse district maps across the country. In 2010, the Republican Party executed the Red Map Project that targeted key states to win enough state legislative seats to give the GOP control over a majority of state house and Senate chambers. This, in turn, enabled Republicans to use the census data to draw up new district maps effectively gerrymandering state and federal districts that gave the party a decisive advantage in elections over the next decade. Your reporter spoke with Walker Bragman, a reporter with the Daily Poster, who in his recent article titled, Republicans are poised to gerrymander their way into long-term power, warns that the Democrats' failure to pass voting rights protection legislation gives the Republican Party a green light to gerrymander their way to another decade of minority rule. 
Now, Democrats had from when they took office post-2020 Congress and August 12th to pass something that would ban partisan gerrymandering. That didn't have to necessarily be an entire comprehensive package like the For the People Act, although the For the People Act is, has a lot of good stuff in it. So, you know, understandably, you want to get that done. But they had eight months, really, with which to act and pass something, because if you pass a law uh, banning gerrymandering after the maps have already been adopted, after states have drawn them up, it's, it complicates things. The states have to um, if it does apply, there there will be legal challenges, first of all. And if it, if it is found to apply, you're going to have to move primaries back. You're going to have to shift elections, probably have to go back into session to redraw the maps. It's, it's going to be a very complicated process. It's not That's not to say it's impossible. They could still pass something, um, but it's much less likely that it will apply to the 2022 races or apply before, frankly, 2031 when the districts are redrawn. So Democrats really needed to act in this period of time, and they didn't. Uh, the reason that they didn't is because they, they, they did put the uh, For the People Act up, uh, tried to get debate on it twice in the Senate, but it was it was beaten back every time by Republican filibusters. And for some reason, the Biden administration has not tried to sort of force party unity in the Senate, you know, to get Manchin and Cinema on board to try to get this this through. I think what really troubles me is that it seems as though there's a lack of urgency or even understanding um, in the White House about just how serious this is. And it will it will hobble his agenda, what agenda he has, the same way that the Republican House crippled uh, the Obama presidency for the remainder after, after 2010. I mean, we needed this pass. Democrats should have looked at what happened after the 2010 midterms and thrown everything they had into planning for the census year election so that they could retake Congress. Because if we are going to deal with the problems we face, we face historic inequality, unprecedented inequality today. We face an existential climate crisis. And on top of that, we also face a, a rising, mobilized far right. And, and of course, a, a pandemic. So if we are going to address these issues, we need the power of the legislature. We cannot do it through executive order. We need the power of, of government. I hope that they pass it. August 12th really was the, the deadline. Uh, we'll see what happens going forward. I'm, I'm not super hopeful, and I don't really know what the plan is at this point for any progress in the next decade. Well, Walker, what is your guess as to why the Biden administration, particularly in those in Congress, don't really manifest the urgency of this, where they could potentially be locked out of power for 10 years, and more importantly, really degrade our majoritarian democracy, where more people are voting for candidates that aren't going to win because of the way the system is rigged by the Republicans here. You hit the nail on the head. There is this, this erosion of our democracy that is serious. It's fundamental. It gets really to the core of will this republic hold together? And I, I think that should weigh more in, in the minds of everyone in Washington. I think the reason that it hasn't, and this is just speculation, but I believe the reason that it hasn't is that there is still within the Democratic Party and particularly, you know, and Biden is a part of this, 
an element that does not fundamentally believe that government should take an, an active role in resolving problems, that, that fundamentally at the core, the best vehicle for change and progress is state action and the private sector. And this is a relic of the Reagan revolution, and it has taken hold in the Democratic Party like a cancer, and it is it is eating away at what remains of our of our frankly of our of our country. If we cannot shake these relics of the Reagan era and cannot expel them from government and replace them with people who understand and recognize the severity of the crises we face and who who see. That, that government can and has a responsibility to resolve those crises, then we are in serious, serious trouble. That was Walker Bragman, a reporter with The Daily Poster. Find a link to his recent piece titled, Republicans are poised to gerrymander their way into long-term power and related articles, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Several federal pandemic relief programs that allocated funds to most U.S. families have especially boosted the fortunes of low-income families with children. According to a number of studies, programs including stimulus checks, increased food stamps, and expanded unemployment insurance and child tax credits are primarily responsible for reducing the nation's child poverty rate by half. A Columbia University study found that child poverty rates fell from 14.2% to 5.6%, a dramatic decline of 61%. That's good news for millions of struggling working families. The bad news is that most of these programs offered one-time payments only. Moreover, recently expanded monthly child tax credit benefits are due to expire next year, unless the program is reauthorized by Congress. Progressives maintain that dramatic cuts in poverty support their view that poverty levels reflect political choices and government programs are capable of reducing economic need. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Zach Tilley, policy associate with the Children's Defense Fund, who explains how the programs work, how families have benefited, and the challenges ahead to maintain the reduction in child poverty. Based on the, the studies that we've seen sort of the, the anti-poverty provisions that have been adopted over the last year through the American Rescue Plan and in previous um, COVID-related legislation have cut the poverty rate nationwide really substantially and the child poverty rate in half. So the pieces that have uh, been responsible for that, that reduction are the enhanced uh, unemployment benefits, the increase to the SNAP program, there's a 15% boost to SNAP, the second and third rounds of economic impact payments, which passed in December 2020, and then um, the third round that passed in, in March in the American Rescue Plan, and then the enhanced child tax credit. There are a few other programs that are sort of accounted for in, in these estimates, smaller boosts to the WIC program. That is the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. 
the LIHEAP, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program um, are also included, but those are smaller programs with, with smaller effects. It's very clear that the programs that have had the biggest effect on poverty are the programs where there are the fewest strings attached and the fewest administrative hoops to jump through. So do you know by any chance when the federal child tax credit was started? I think the child tax credit first showed up in the 70s. It reached prominence in the 90s after um, welfare reform. It, along with the earned income tax credit, were touted as sort of a, a new way of getting money to families that were conditioned on work. The interesting thing about, and the important thing about what's happened most recently in the American Rescue Plan is that work requirement has been taken out of it. So it used to be the case that you had to earn um, at least $2,500, but in actuality, closer to $20,000 or $30,000 in a year to be eligible for the full child tax credit benefit. The result of that was 23 million children being excluded from the full value of the child tax credit just because their family incomes weren't high enough. And that meant that the program wasn't reaching the kids who, who needed the benefit the most. And that change with the American Rescue Plan, which now requires $0 in income um, to receive the child tax credit, which is, um, which is great and, and part, of the, part of the reason that it achieves such a robust poverty reduction. Can you say which, maybe it's all of these uh, enhancements are not necessarily going to last beyond a certain period, like a year or a couple of years, unless they're put into law. Is that right? That's right. The long and short of it is that all of the programs that are responsible for this sort of unprecedented one-year drop in the poverty rate are going to come off the books. You know, unless we, unless we do more to make things like the child tax credit permanent, um, we could be in a position where even with a post-pandemic economic recovery, the poverty rates bounce back significantly in 2022. Can you give me any examples of how this additional assistance has helped the poorest families? Like, you know, what, what has been different for them? What has been better for them because of this assistance? Sure. So I can speak most directly to the experience families have had with the child tax credit. Um, the first monthly payment of the child tax credit was made on July 15th. And so families began to receive $300 per child aged uh, zero to six and $250 per child aged six to 17. And we've seen, you know, the early returns are that families are one, spending this money on, on basic needs, on, on food and the rent and clothes for their kids and school supplies and all these things. But we've also seen stories of families who, you know, are using the money to do things together that they haven't been able to do during the pandemic or maybe longer than that just because of financial constraints. And we're just hearing lots of stories about, you know, parents having some financial stress lifted. That was Zach Tilley, policy associate with the Children's Defense Fund. Learn more about how federal programs have dramatically reduced child poverty in the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues 
affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, WBSU in Brockport, New York, KODX in Seattle, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.